Good morning, boys. So good to see you guys. If you weren't here um, last week to hear from Sandy, I encourage you to go back online and, and check that out, Minding Your Own Manners. How do we live and love as Christians in a divided world? Just jam-packed with wisdom. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. But I'm so glad to see you here this morning as we dive back into our study in the Gospel of John. As you get your coffee and make way to your seat, go ahead and flip open to John chapter 4. <clears throat> you remember a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was two weeks ago now, we uh, studied John 3, and we saw this um, evangelistic conversation take place between Jesus and that man named Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? Well, we saw that he was uh, a religious somebody. In every way, that guy was an insider, highly religious, loved his Bible, um, cared about obedience, goodness, um, cared about obedience, and uh, he was just a morally upright person, part of the ruling class, and any one of us would have felt comfortable of our daughters uh, marrying that man named Nicodemus. Now, there was something missing in his life. Uh, we saw that he did not understand the work of the Holy Spirit, his need of a new heart, or for God to take up residence in his life. So we saw Jesus graciously enter into his life to explain to him those all-important things. Now, in John chapter 4, uh, we swing to the opposite end of the spectrum. Jesus is now in another evangelistic conversation, this time not with a religious somebody, but a religious nobody, an outcast in every single way. In fact, this woman is the exact opposite of Nicodemus. Yet still, we see J Jesus graciously come to her too. Now, these two stories in John 3 and John 4, the Apostle John puts them in juxtaposition with one another on purpose. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, which he says explicitly in verse 42. The gospel is to go to all people. He is a friend of sinners, and it doesn't really matter what kind of sinner they are. That's the point that John is making, putting these two passages together. Jesus is on mission, gentlemen. And as we read this passage, not only hopefully will we be encouraged in our own faith, but we'll also be informed on how to go about the mission he gives us as his evangelists. So let's go ahead and read John chapter 4 together. We've got a lot of verses to get through. Um, we'll start at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that, the Jacob, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samarians. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband either. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, whether neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, and <clears throat> for its salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all of these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you seek her? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I've ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then the harvest comes? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and he have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I've ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked uh, him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers, and I'm so grateful for your life-giving word that you give us, in which you reveal to us yourself and your plan to save the world and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we do pray that you would speak to us. And as we're here looking at this story of this lost woman, we pray for the many lost people that are doing horrible things that we see in the world, most notably um, in Maine just last night. We pray for those families whose lives have been shattered because of that shooter. Lord, we do pray for justice. We do pray that man would be found. 
but ultimately we pray that you would draw close to all of those who are suffering and that you would bend their hearts and minds towards you. We continue to pray for that conflict, the major conflict in the Middle East for our friends in Israel and even in Palestine, those image bearers who are suffering. We do pray for the eradication of terrorism, the end of hate. We pray for peace. And we pray that you would make yourself known in a powerful way in that part of the world that, that the only answer would be that the gospel of Christ has come. So, Lord, we lift all of that to you in prayer this morning. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Folks, uh, stats show us that there's roughly about 8 billion people in the world. About 8 billion people. This is from the Pew Research. 8 billion people. And about 32% of, of that 8 billion people, 32%, consider themselves to be Christian in one way or another. Furthermore, only 8% of that 32% of that 8 billion would consider themselves to be evangelical Christians, that is, those who believe in the unique salvation offered in Christ alone and believe in his life-giving word. All that to say is there's a whole lot of lost folks in the world. And as the Church of Jesus Christ, we've got a lot of work to do. And I'm so thankful here at Second, and many of your churches too, we have thriving mission departments that take that seriously. But if you want to boil it down, not just looking in the world, but just the United States, maybe even East Memphis, demographers say that the fastest growing demographic, religiously speaking, is something called the nuns. Not Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. That is people who are spiritual, people who even pray, but are, don't seem to think it necessary to commit to any formalized religion, particularly Christianity. One out of every three people you meet fit into that category. Now, I find that interesting because what that tells us is, is that all the lost people that we know or will ever meet, for the most part, have a spiritual hunger in their life, an expressed spiritual hunger, or at least a realization that they need spiritual vitality. They simply are looking in all the wrong places. That's what that category tells us. We even saw this uh, with our hometown hero, John Moran. Um, over the past year and a half, but certainly most recently, ESPN put out a 14-page article dredging up, you know, most recently, I think last month, dredging up all of his past issues and struggles. You read that. I feel so sorry that his life is just being played out for the entire world to see. I mean, how would we like it if ESPN wrote a 14-page article about our misdiscretions? But anyway, after that article, he tweeted, it seems that I've received everything I've ever wanted, but I still don't have peace. Now, again, I think it's unfortunate that this whole story is being played out on the public scale, but I think his struggle is the struggle of most people that we know. Most people are looking for peace. Most people are looking to be ultimately satisfied. Unfortunately, they're looking in all the wrong places. Now, it turns out that is the story of the woman at the well. She was searching for life in things that offer no life. And so as Christians, what are we supposed to ask when we come to this passage? As the burden of the lost world presses in on our hearts, and brothers, it ought to press down on our hearts as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are in our right minds, it should break our hearts. There's that many lost souls in this world, sheep without a shepherd, people who are searching for peace and satisfaction and security but simply cannot find it. That ought to break our hearts. Jesus teaches us that in Matthew chapter 9. But as that burden does press in on our lives, how are we to reach people like this woman at the well? People that we know who are searching for life 
in all of the wrong places. Well, Jesus shows us in John chapter 4. And again, as we look at this story, I do think we will be encouraged, but he also informs us how we take upon this mission that he gives us. Okay, so there's three things I think we see in John chapter 4. First off, we see the evangelistic method of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 1 through 15. Then in 16 through 26, we also see the saving message of Jesus Christ. That is, how does someone receive the gift that Jesus talks about in those first 15 verses? Then lastly, we see the evidences of a transformed life. We'll briefly talk about that. But first off, the evangelistic method of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 15. In his book, it's a lovely book, and I encourage you to read it in your discipleship groups if you haven't. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's by a man named Robert Coleman. I had him as a professor in seminary, but a lot of folks read this book. A lot of campus ministries use it. It's a great book. And in the Master Plan of Evangelism, uh, Robert Coleman, he goes to great lengths to show that Jesus was intentional about teaching his disciples how to do ministry, teaching them, for example, how to do evangelism. And one of the principles that he really focused on was showing them how to do things. He treated his disciples as if they were interns or understudies, and he would go off and, and do surgical repair on the, on the patient and allow his disciples to watch him. He showed them how to do things. Now, if you're paying attention, the disciples were clearly not present for this life-changing conversation. I mean, they were off buying sandwiches for lunch. I mean, they missed the whole thing, right? But we do know one of the reasons that this was recorded and passed down to us is so that we might see Jesus do this. Yes, that we might be encouraged and understand what the gospel is, but as his guys, men after his own heart, his church, that we might learn how to reach people like this woman at the well. And the first thing that we see is we must be willing to break through barriers for the sake of the gospel. In my mind, one of the greatest impediments that all of us have in sharing the gospel are those human barriers, some of which that we put up in our own mind, but other which are just simply cultural. Some barriers, you know, we, we have in our own mind, those, those type of things that we say to ourselves to convince ourselves we shouldn't be doing this, like, I have nothing in common with my neighbor or this person. Surely there's someone more qualified to do this. We have no, no common ground. And, or some of us are just plain honest with our intimidation. And I'm just fearful. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to do this. And brothers, let me assure you, every single Christian feels those things. Pastors feel those things and think those things. I think those things. And about 12 years ago, my first year as a college minister at Rhodes College, I especially struggled with those things. I, mean, I was like a newborn baby when they threw me at Rhodes College. I had no idea what I was doing. I had maybe shared my faith with one person prior to that. And they put me at Rhodes College. And guys, listen, I went to Ole Miss. I have very little in common with Rhodes students, okay? <laughs> I got educated. These guys were just, just giant minds. I mean, we had nothing to, in common to talk about. And furthermore, I was scared. My first guy I evangelized, I was literally scared. He was a senior. He was a black belt in karate, uh, a mixed martial art. He's actually, at the time, training for some underground, no-holds-barred UFC fight thing in Memphis. And, and I remember one day at lunch table, he said, Barton, you can talk to me about Jesus all you want, as long as you spar with me in the ring. Now, guys, I know we're supposed to be all things to all people, but Sandy Wilson never said, I'm going to get a black eye for the sake of the gospel. Now, clearly, he saw the, the urine stain on my pants because he did not fight me. He knew that I was scared, and he allowed me to talk to him about the gospel. But I struggled with those things, those fears and concerns. Surely there's someone more qualified to do this. 
We all have that, so don't worry about it. Everybody has that. It's not just you. But then there's also cultural barriers, those things that we have nothing to deal with, do with, but still that impede us from sharing the gospel sometimes. Racial divisions, religious divisions, different religions, animosity against one another, political divisions, all those things that Sandy talked about last week. But Jesus says we must be willing to break through those things for the sake of the gospel, even if it means we get a proverbial black eye on our reputations, very much like Jesus did. We must be willing to do that. Now, we see some of these barriers in which Jesus breaks through. First off, he broke through the gender barrier. The person he spoke to was a woman. Now, in our enlightened 21st century minds, we might say to ourselves, why is that such a big deal? But if you look at verse 27, you'll see how dramatic that was back then. It reads, verse 27, Just then, my summation, the disciples came back from lunch, and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. They thought to themselves, why are you talking with her? That word marveled, really, the, in the original language, is shocked. These guys, his 12 guys, his, his bros, came back, and they were absolutely shocked that not only a man, but the man they believed to be the Messiah was talking to this woman. Why would you waste your time talking with her, is what they thought. There literally was a rabbinical prayer that rabbis prayed in the morning, this is absolutely true, where they would truly pray, blessed are you, O God, for not making me a woman. Can you imagine praying that in the morning? But that's what they prayed. And you better believe this woman knew of that prayer. That was a social norm. Men did not talk to women. So you got to believe, too, how much it touched her that this man came and spoke to her. The point I want us to see is that the lost heart very much responds to the loving heart that crosses barriers. She responded to him. That was a big deal for her. But he broke through that barrier. Another barrier we see is that not only is this a woman, verses 4 and 7, but that she was a Samaritan woman. Now, the fact that she was Samaritan meant that Jesus was breaking through three different barriers. There was a racial barrier, there was a religious barrier, and there was also a political barrier. All of those divisions that Sandy was actually talking about last week. Back then, the Jews absolutely despised the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Well, back in the divided kingdom days in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, they renamed their capital to be Samaria. Now, after the Assyrians invaded and exiled the northern kingdom, those who were left, and certainly those who came back after the exile was over, intermarried with the Assyrians. So the faithful Jews down in Judah saw that, and they abhorred it. They thought to themselves, these people are traitors, they are rebels, they even called them half-breeds. And that's hurts our ears to hear that language, but that's what they thought of the Samaritans. They were traitors and they were half-breeds. Furthermore, they considered them to be heretics because they actually kind of were heretics. You know, they had a little bit of Jewish tradition in their background. They believed the first five books of Moses, but they only believed that the first five books of Moses were scripture. They didn't pay attention to the prophets or any continued revelation. They also worshiped improperly. Regulative principle. We know that God reveals to us the way in which he needs and wants to be worshiped. Right? They were worshiping improperly. Okay, So they weren't abiding by God's revelation. They, they were essentially heretics. So Jesus was breaking through this massive barrier. These were, were, were this religious sect, and they were politically different. They were racially different. They were different in every other way. And Jesus took a whole lot of heat for it. All right? In the Jewish mind, Samaritans were both unclean and evil. You remember in John chapter 8, or if you don't, we'll get to it soon. 
the Pharisees got so fed up with Jesus, they actually called Jesus, you're a Samaritan. And so basically the religious elite was, was saying to Jesus, you're unclean and you're evil for interacting with people like this, like this woman. But Jesus didn't care. He broke right on through those things, no matter what it meant for his reputation. And brothers, as Jesus' followers, we must be willing to do the same thing. But the greatest barrier he crossed wasn't any of that. It was her lifestyle. This woman was very much a sinner. She was immoral. She was a sexual sinner. And everybody knew about it. It's interesting that John made a point to say of when all of this took place, the sixth hour, that was midday. Why is that important? It's important because all of the other women who would have gotten water that day did so in the morning when it wasn't hot outside and they could do it together. They could help each other. It was also an excellent opportunity just to have fellowship. But this woman, she did it alone under the hot sun. Why? Because no one wanted to be around her. To them, she was just a reprobate. They didn't want to interact with her. They wanted to be associated with her. But furthermore, I don't think she wanted to be around anybody either. Most ashamed people don't want to be around other people. But what do we see happen? We see Jesus intentionally go to her, talk with her, and speak tenderly into the places of her deepest, deepest shame. Now, friends, why does Jesus do this? He's breaking through a whole lot of social norms a lot of barriers, of which would cause him to be ostracized too. But why would he do that? He did it, frankly, simply, brothers, because it was his mission. The mission that his father gave him. Look at verse 4. It's a very important phrase right there in verse 4. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. Geographically speaking, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, there was a much faster route to go north from Judea to Galilee, skipping Samaria altogether. In fact, most Jews did that because they hated the Samaritans so much. They didn't go down Park. They stayed on Poplar. They wanted to go through that neighborhood. So geographically, he did not have to go north through Samaria, but providentially he did because providentially his father made it so. First off, we see that he had to leave Judea why did he have to leave Judea? Because the, the Pharisees were catching wind of how popular Jesus was going. But his hour had not come yet. Jesus had to preserve his life for the next three years. It wasn't his time yet. So he had to leave Judea. And furthermore, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because the gospel goes to all people. And that's what Jesus is showing here. He is the savior of the whole world, not just respectable people and not just our own tribe. What John 3 and John 4 together show us is that every single person needs Christ. And the moralist is not saved by his morality, as we saw in John 3. And what we learned here is that an immoral person is never too immoral that they can't be saved in Christ. The gospel goes to everyone. And if that's the case, brothers, we must be willing to break through the barriers to bring the gospel to everyone, which leads us to our second minor point under this first main point. Once we get through those barriers, we actually do have to share the gospel, which we see in verses 10 through 15. Now, how does Jesus share this gospel? I love it. It's beautiful. He just does it so naturally. Give me a drink of water, starts this whole thing. He begins naturally. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble at this point, at least I do. You know, when you find yourself in this type of conversation, at this point of the conversation, 
you know, maybe it's because we're, you know, getting ourselves amped up and, you know, we just start saying words we wouldn't normally say, you know, or, you know, our posture gets really straight and we have to get all professional and maybe sometimes our tone changes, you know, sinner over here, I have something theological to tell you. And, and they just look at you like, I just need to mow my grass. Would you please leave me alone? Right? We do stuff like that. Jesus didn't do that. He was natural about it. I mean, notice how this whole thing starts. He says, give me a drink of water. Jesus, in his humanity, was thirsty, fully God, fully man. In his humanity, he's thirsty. He sees this woman, he says, by well, says, give me a drink of water. Now, in verse 9, she was put off by that for the reasons that we just explained. It was strange to her that this man was talking to her, especially knowing that she was a Samaritan. And she looks over her shoulder and goes, are you talking to me? And so what does Jesus do next? Jesus takes the slack in the rope that she afforded him. He doesn't yank on the rope, but he pulls her a little bit closer. And he arouses her curiosity. And he just says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that I'm talking to you, you would have asked me to give you a drink of living water, and I would have done it. And at that point, the woman, I believe in verse 11, clearly has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And so she goes, well, you don't even have a bucket to give me water. And did you say living water? Does that mean your water is better than the water from this well of Jacob here? You know, my ancestor? Are you better than Jacob? Now, of course, Jesus could have said, well, yeah, I'm the greater Jacob lady. <laughs> the water I have for you isn't dirty ground water. It's actually living water. But he doesn't say any of that. He could have said that. But he didn't. He zeroed in on what was most important. Now, again, I think we trip up in this part, too. When we're in this point of the conversation, if you've ever been in an evangelistic conversation before, sometimes we feel the tendency to tell that person everything there is to know about the Christian faith. And that person starts to fall asleep on us. I remember one of the first times that um, I led a couple of students um, in the practice of evangelism. We were down in Orlando, and there's this one guy, a very close friend of mine. Um, we were just going to the different rides, and there was this Wiccan man you know, like a witch. And he was, he was handing out pamphlets to come to, I don't know, their witch meeting or something. I don't know. And so uh, my friend, though, wanted to share his faith. And so he goes up to this person and he got so amped up. He never shared with him the faith, but he did, however, share with him the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, he explained to him the doctrine of predestination. And he, you know, he was just all tongue-tied and you could see the that witch man, his eyes were just kind of glossed over like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Sometimes we can do that. We just get caught up and feel like we have to say everything there is to say. Jesus didn't do that. I mean, those two things that she brought up were, were important, biblically speaking, and, and maybe they got to that later, but Jesus didn't waste time on, hey, was it six literal days of creation? He doesn't do that. He focuses on what she most needs in that moment because he knows her heart. He knows what she most needs, and as Christians, we know what people need too. They're searching for life in the wrong places, and so that's why Jesus says in verse 13, Listen, everybody who drinks that water will get thirsty again, but the water I give them, they will never ask for another drink. In fact, it will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. But again, notice how natural this is. Jesus just goes into the mundane moments of life. Could I, give, could I have a drink of water? And he allows the conversation to take place until he saw the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, where is the gospel in this? Well, let's ask ourselves, what is it? What does living water mean? That's a very key phrase in this whole passage, living water. It was actually symbolic of two things that actually refer to the same thing. On the one hand, water of life is referring to complete satisfaction. 
ultimate satisfaction. It's exactly what this woman needed to hear because that's what she was after, okay? Now, why does it refer to ultimate satisfaction? Sometimes, you know, where we live, just by the nature of where we live, these water analogies, specifically this one, we might miss it a little bit. None of us are in danger um, of dying of dehydration for the lack of water. We don't live in an arid climate like this woman where water was scarce. In fact, back then, wine was much more prevalent of a commodity than water. Okay, so water was a big deal. So what does it feel like to die of dehydration? Well, I looked it up. First off, your body begins to ache. Your, your nerves, get they just stand on end. You're just really achy. All of your muscles ache. If you don't get any water, eventually your tongue swells. It becomes bloated, sticks to the top of your mouth. Your, your, your throat becomes coarse. Eventually, it feels like it's on fire, like literally. Then after that, if you still don't get any water, your body just develops this searing pain head to toe. And you live with that searing pain until eventually you die. Water was a big deal, but Jesus has the audacity to say here, okay, listen, I got something, lady, that your soul needs more than your body needs water. What do you think she would have thought? I mean, water was a major necessity, especially back then. It was so scarce. And Jesus says, I got something that's more essential to your being than water. And furthermore, he says, if you go to any other fount than the one I'm offering, you're just going to get more thirsty and you're going to die quicker. It kind of reminds me of the USS Indianapolis. For you World War II buffs, you know the story, the, the, the battleship that delivered the bomb and was on its way back and it was sunk by the Japanese. A lot of movies have been made by it. The most recent one, I think, had Nick Cage in it. But, you know, that story is told by Quint in the movie Jaws. Everybody's seen Jaws. But there's that scene after, after the battleship is sunk, all the soldiers, all the, uh, the, the Navy men go into the water. Then the sharks come. And that's really the major point in the movies, that the sharks come and attack the soldiers. But was a greater threat than the sharks in actuality was the lack of water. I mean, they were in the, they were in the ocean for, for, for many, many days, and they didn't have any water. And so a lot of them were tempted. They were so desperate for water, they started drinking ocean water. And as they drank the ocean water, not only did they hallucinate, but they actually became more thirsty because they were ingesting salt. And as they got more thirsty, they died quicker. That's what sin does. Sin is the reason people are spiritually thirsty in the first place. And then it convinces you that if you go to that person or that thing or sex or money or power and you drink from those wells, it will satisfy you. And the tricky nature of sin is, for at least a little bit, it does satisfy you. But eventually you realize, no, 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 I'm more and more thirsty than I was before. And it leads to death. Jesus is saying if we take the buckets of our souls to any other fount than him, any other beauty, any other power, any other security, we're to get more and more thirsty and die quicker. That's what he's saying to this lady, what she's been doing. But then he ends it with this amazing, amazing promise. What does he say? He says, not only will the water I give you make you feel better, it will quench that thirst, but it says in you a spring welling up into eternal life will take place. What Jesus is offering here is more than forgiveness. He is talking about a satisfaction. He's talking about being satisfied, never needing to find other waters because you're satisfied with this living water I'm giving. He's talking about spiritual peace, spiritual security, joy, and it never ends. It just keeps getting better and better. It's not a well. It's a spring. Springs don't end. It keeps bubbling, bubbling, and bubbling until we enter in the fullness thereof on the day to come. 
That's what this woman needed. That's what every single person on the planet needs. Ultimate satisfaction. Now, what is this ultimate satisfaction referring to? It's referring, brothers, to the Holy Spirit. That's ultimately what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this living water is eternal life mediated by the Holy Spirit that only Jesus Christ provides. If you go back into the Old Testament, especially the prophets, which she wasn't reading, by the way, the prophets use that analogy to explain the life of God. For example, God himself, we see in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, is the fountain of living waters. Then Jeremiah says the reason that people are dying of thirst is because they have cut themselves off from God on account of their own sin. But then we get the promise of new life in Ezekiel 36, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, where water is a metaphor of God's forgiving grace and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Another promise in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, where Isaiah says, God will pour out water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and the blessing of your descendants. And earlier in Isaiah, he describes what that day will be like. And this is what it says. In that day, we with joy will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in this moment, with this social outcast, this reprobate, this sinner that no one wanted anything to do with, Jesus goes to her and says, that day has arrived, and it's arrived for you. Quit going to places that will cause you to become more thirsty. The life you want and the life you need can only be found in me. Gospel presentation. Point is, brothers, people are dying of thirst. That's just the facts. People are dying of thirst, spiritual thirst. And so once we break through those barriers, we got to show them the provision of that need. We don't have to know everything there is to know. Don't worry about, I haven't mastered Jeremiah. I mean, we don't have to know all this stuff. You don't have to say everything there is to say. We just point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who gives living water. But that's the method of Jesus. We, we, we go to people other people won't go to. And we share with them the good news. Of course, there's other things that we do, but that's, those are the two primary points. And as Paul says in Romans 10, as Paul says in Romans 10, how are people going to believe if they do not hear? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? And how is someone going to preach if they're not sent? Brothers, we are sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And how beautiful are the feet of those who obey that call to people like this woman at the well. The evangelistic method. Secondly, and more quickly, the saving message of Christ, verses 16 through 26, or really what Jesus is answering here is how do people actually receive this gift of living water? There's three necessities that Jesus lays out for us. The first one is found in verses 16 through 19. We must embrace our need as sinners. Any trained evangelist will tell you that there comes a point in these type of conversations will, when you will have to bust through a pain barrier. That is that you're actually going to end up having to say something that's just hard to say. You're going to prick that person's conscience so that they become aware of their situation and their sin issue. That's what Jesus does here. Not because he's mean. He, he does it tenderly, if you notice. But he does it because he loves this woman. And it's an absolute necessity for this to happen if she's going to receive the good news of living water. Our shorter catechism teaches us that. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it is not inspired text, but it does summarize what Scripture teaches. Question 85 asks, what does God require of sinful man that they might escape God's wrath and the curse due to their sin? Short answer, repent and believe, which is exactly what Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Question 87, what is repentance? Repentance, brothers, is a saving grace unto life. Repentance is not a bad word does not mean you're in the doghouse. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that God gives us. It's a saving grace unto life where a person understands the fact that they are a sinner, but they also appreciate and understand the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ, and therefore they turn from their sins and turn to the Lord's Jesus. It's a saving grace, but the point is, is how are people going to do that if they do not know their sin problem? I'm willing to bet all of your lost friends desperately want the living water that Jesus is offering. They just haven't come to terms with what has alienated them from God in the first place. Brothers, it is not your responsibility of convicting people of their sin. So just take that burden off your shoulders, okay? The Holy Spirit does that. But sometimes it is our responsibility to, pray, to bust through that pain barrier to help people see their need, which is exactly what Jesus does here. Verse 16, Seems like he's changing the topic of the conversation, but in verse 16, he says, go, call your husband and come here. He is not changing the subject. He's showing this woman how she is to receive this, this life of living waters by asking probing questions so that she might understand her need. And he does that with that simple word, husband. One word, and he opens up the floodgates. When she heard that one word, I'm sure her jaw went slack because he got to the bottom of her empty well, the place of her deepest shame, and unlocked the door. Now, she responded as anyone would respond. She immediately got defensive. She tried to shut this conversation down. And she said, you know, Mr. Jesus, you got the wrong gal. You know, I, I don't have a husband. But notice Jesus did not let her off the hook either. Sometimes we let people off the hook because it's uncomfortable for us just as much as it's uncomfortable for them. But Jesus doesn't do that. He presses a little bit deeper. He goes, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've actually had five. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband either. Now, I love what she says next. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I am a prophet. I know everything you've ever done, every bed you've slept in. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. But notice what he does with this knowledge, brothers. This is the point, I think. With all of the things he knows about her, he doesn't lap on guilt. He does not lap on shame. He doesn't yell at her. What does he say? He says, come here. And what that tells us is that day and that moment when Jesus is tenderly probing her heart, revealing to her her sin, his posture is not one of a wagging finger and crossed arms. It's one with open arms. That in love, he is willing to wound this person so that she might hear his voice. Brother, she is a stand-in for all of us as sinners and all of our lost friends. That he loves us so much that he is willing to wound our hearts so that we might hear his voice come to me. Don't be afraid to wound your friend. Do it tenderly. But Jesus uses that to save people because we have to understand our need. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. That is significant. He's not playing around when he says that. The wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The best doggone news that's ever been uttered in the history of humanity, but only if we understand our need. I mean, if people don't understand their need, that's just a statement. That's like something you put on a bumper sticker. But if you truly understand your need and you hear the good news of the gospel, it's everything. So Jesus awakens her to the reality of her sin problem so that she will come to him. Secondly, we also must understand the contours of the Christian faith. Not fully, but essentially the basics. And we see this in verses 20 through 24. Now, after this woman has this very pointed conversation with Jesus, it seems like she deviates from the conversation. Like she's putting up her defensive tactics again. She starts asking all these profound theological questions. Okay, she goes, okay, prophet, well, you gave me a lot of stuff to think about, but let's now talk about worship. Let's talk about maybe sacrifice. Let's talk about the temple. My people, they worship on this mountain. Uh, you, you people, you worship on Mount Zion, which, which is correct. Tell me. Now, she very well could be trying to change the topic. Whenever, you know, whenever Sarah convicts me of sin, I usually try to do that first. So she very well could be done doing that with Jesus, like trying to change the topic. But after reading this, I don't think so. I really do think that she was convicted of her sin, right? Because see how her train of thought goes. When someone had a sin problem back then, what did they do? They made sacrifices. And where would they make sacrifices? They would make them at the temple, which is her question here. Which temple is the right one to go to? So if we had an audio recording of that original conversation, I bet you it went something like this. You're right. I am a sinner. I'm, I'm dead in my sins. I, I've sinned before a just and holy God. I need to make a sacrifice. Jesus, where do I go? I mean, we're supposed to go to Mount Gerizim, but, but you're Jewish and you're the one that's telling me all this stuff and y'all go to Mount Zion. Tell me where do I go to make my sacrifice? I need to make a sacrifice. So she's, she's convicted, I think, and she, she really wants to know how to deal with her sin. But notice then that Jesus takes that as an opportunity to explain to her the Christian faith. So first off, he says, you know what? You're right. Not all religions are the same, okay? You guys, you know, in your history, y'all been worshiping wrongly. You haven't believed the whole Bible. There is the temple, and the temple's actually in Mount Zion. And so you've been in the wrong side of history. I mean, salvation does come through the Jews, historically, redemptively speaking. But I got something to tell you, ma'am. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. Temple and all that stuff, it, it doesn't matter. It no longer matters about where you can go to find God. Now what it's about is God coming to you. And this is what he says to her. The time has come that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? He is talking about the Holy Spirit, the life-giving water that, that he will fill a whole people there's the new wineskins. There's, there's, a, there's a new wine at hand. There's going to be other people than Nicodemus in this, in this whole boat here. The Holy Spirit is going to fill a whole gambit of different types of people. And as those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, their location now becomes a location of the presence of God. When you receive my living water lady and you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to worship God in power. And wherever you are, that is where the Lord is. This is what Jesus is saying. He's explaining to her that she has to understand what he is offering if she's actually going to receive this living water. He's saying, lady, I am the truth of God. 
I am the word of God made flesh. And when you come to me in faith, I will give you my spirit. I will give you the Holy Spirit. And you will be able to know God. And you'll be able to love God. And you'll be able to worship him in the fullness of the joy, the new life you have in the Holy Spirit. And all of this is made possible about what I'm about to do. Now you say, where does Jesus say that? Well, he gives us hints all over the page. Verse 23, he talks about his hour. Remember, that is a very important phrase for the Apostle John. The hour is Jesus' work on the cross, but that's not the only hint. Friends, this is not the only time that this woman will hear Jesus say, I am thirsty. She became a disciple, a follower of Jesus, which meant that she was at the hill of Calvary that day when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And in John 19 said, yet again, I thirst. Do you think this woman picked up on that the last time he said, give me a drink, I'm thirsty? When he quotes Psalm 22, do you think it really came flowing into her mind, Psalm 22, when Jesus says, or quotes the beginning of Psalm 22, but back then he just quote the first line of a, of a psalm, and you're basically saying the whole thing. That's just what they did back then, Rabbi. Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth like someone who's dehydrated and dying of thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. Here is what is unique about Christianity is that Jesus dies so that we might have living water. And she will, probably didn't understand that in full right then, but she would three years later. That Jesus becomes spiritually dehydrated he pours himself out so that we might feel and receive the refreshing spring of the favor of God. This woman felt it and knew it that she was under the wrath of God because of her sin. But on the hill of Calvary, the wrath of God is completely exhausted on the sun. He takes her record and gives her his record, gives her a new heart, gives her his spirit so she's filled with joy, completely satisfied. Tell me what other religion authors that. None save the Christian faith and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand the basics. Teach people the basics. We're saved by grace alone. This woman fully understood that this whole thing was about grace at this point. When she was drawing water that day, she wasn't praying. She wasn't crying out to God. She wasn't confessing sin. She wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking her in grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what this passage teaches. Now that leads us to the last step. We must trust Jesus as Savior. Now, this is me just adding to the text a little bit, but it seems as in verse 25 through 26, this woman as is at the proverbial breaking point. I mean, look what she says. I mean, she probably says it with a frog in her throat. Maybe she's even testing Jesus to see if he really is what her heart is telling her he is. And so he's looking, she's looking him in the eye, and she says, you've, you've given me a lot to think about, Jesus. And when that Messiah comes, the one that even I know about, the Christ, he's going to tell me all the things I need to know. Then staring her right back in the eye, probably with a smile on his face, because this is good news, Jesus says, I am. I am who is speaking to you. That's what it says in the original text says, I am he here, but in the language, the original language, it really says, I am who is speaking to you. Now remember, she only knew the first five books of the Bible, so she would have understood what Jesus said just then. There's another point 
where we hear that phrase. Exodus 3, verse 14. When Moses is about to rescue Israel from the house of slavery, the land of Egypt. And he experiences that theophany at the burning bush and he gets his marching orders from Yahweh. And he says, voice, who am I supposed to tell the people of Israel that sends me to rescue them? And what does the voice say? He says, I am. So in this moment, with this person that no one cared about, a reprobate, someone just enslaved in their sin, it's to that person that Jesus says, I am clothed in flesh. And I have come just for you. I have come to redeem you. I've come to deliver you. I've come to satisfy you. Trust me. And brothers, it is clear that this woman trusted Jesus. Two minutes tops. We see the evidence of the transformed life in her life in the remaining verses. First off, this woman, she embraced repentance. People generally don't like being called sinners unless they know the Savior. And this woman repented because she knew the Savior. We're told, what is it, verse uh, 28, that she left her jar behind. Now, she was still physically thirsty. I mean, she lived in a desert in, you know, right under the noonday sun. Of course she was thirsty. So symbolically, scholars tell us that John records this, that she left her jar behind to show that she had abandoned her vanity and her pursuits of trying to find life in other places because she has found life in Jesus. She left her jar behind. She embraced repentance. That's a good thing. Secondly, she was totally in love with Jesus. It's clear in these verses that she is just completely enraptured in this person. Jesus loves him completely. Jesus has become her everything. Why? Because Jesus first loved her. I've told this illustration elsewhere before. If I've done it here, I apologize. But it really does remind me of the time I proposed to my wife, Sarah. If you know Sarah, she is better than me in every single way. And um, when, I, when I proposed to her, however long ago that was, I, uh, I, I took her out on town. I had this whole plan, and we were driving about doing mindless errands. I got her roommates to go purchase a whole bunch of flowers, gave them my credit card. Now, unfortunately, they went to the garden district, so I'm still playing off my, my flower bill 12 years later. I um, also got my dad's iPod, cleaned off all of his music. We put on our favorite love songs. We went through this Vince Gill phase. There was a whole lot of Vince Gill on there, unfortunately. But um, everything was going according to plan, and when we walked into her house, we opened the door, and the place looked like Narnia. It was beautiful, but I didn't take all of my dad's music off, apparently, because when we walked in, the song being played was B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone, which is not the song you want being played when you're about to propose to someone, right? She laughed, which I thought to myself, what a keeper. And so I proposed to her, and she actually said yes. I knew in my heart she probably would. But if I was her pastor at the time, I would tell her, you really need to think about this one. But she pledged herself to me. I am not a perfect person. I'm certainly not a perfect husband. But my job, my duty now is to simply love this woman back who in grace pledged herself to me. And isn't that the response of any sinner saved by grace? Jesus has no business being in a marriage with bums like us, but he chose us in love anyway. And so when you believe that and rest in that and you are in your right mind, the overarching desire of your heart is to love him back and to worship him. That is evidence of a transformed life. We see that clearly in her. 
And certainly another evidence is, you know, you just don't care what people think about you anymore. You want everybody to know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we clearly see in this woman's life. So after all of this, <laughs> the disciples come back from lunch. And they say, Jesus, are you going to eat? We brought you a, a foot long from Subway. And Jesus had to have seen her running off, filled with joy. And he says to himself, no, guys, I'm not hungry. My food is to do the will of my father who sent me. I'm on mission, guys. Look at that, look at that woman running off. The harvest field is ripe with people like that. But the laborers are few. Brothers, we are those laborers. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been signed up for duty. He has equipped you with everything you need. He's given you his spirit and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us jump in the harvest. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are very much like that woman at the well. We were trapped in our sin. We were looking for life in all the wrong places. But you had mercy upon us. You gave us life-giving water. And so, Lord, our prayer is simple. We pray that you would give us the faith of that woman at the well, that you truly would become our everything, that we would love you more than everything else. And in that love, we would experience the freedom and the courage to share the life-giving gospel to others who need to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.